0: Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Austin. Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. We're not going to be spending a whole lot of time in this text that we've just read. Instead, we're going to be focusing in on the other New Testament text assigned for today in 2 Timothy, but the gospel reading ended with this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? It seems probably, at least at some level, this is a rhetorical question, urging the people of God to remain watchful, to remain steadfast, to become a People of persistent prayer, which is in line with the explicit instruction throughout that parable, to continually position ourselves to develop into faithfulness and trust. And I think that these are critically important questions for all of us to ponder as well. Will Jesus find faith when he comes? Will he find a people of good, healthy soil in whom the seed of truth has been nourished, wrestled with, passed on to subsequent generations, is planted securely with deep roots, or will the seed be struggling to survive in rocky soil, suffocated by weeds? I think in part, these questions point to the critical need for Christian discipleship. The faith we are a part of is a dynamic and persistent relationship with Jesus, as I think the parable we've read together points to. The life of faith is much more than a momentary decision that we make, it's much more than intellectual assent to a particular set of doctrines. Which, to be clear, and this probably is no surprise, I actually believe in the importance of doctrine. I I am a pastor affirmations of faith, professing our belief as we have done together through our recitation of the Apostles' Creed this morning, I believe these are really important parts of the Christian faith, but it's not the end of the faith. Well, I've made that decision at some point in the past. I've said these words this morning. There's nothing else to be done, so I can sit back and wait for Jesus to return. The faith we are all a part of is is more than just professing our belief or learning facts. Christian faith is unintelligible without discipleship, without an intentional apprenticeship with Jesus where we are being shaped into the image of our Lord to, to truly become his apprentices, always developing, always growing until the end of our lives. The question for us to consider today is, well, how do we do that? How is faith maintained over the long haul? Will Jesus find faith when he returns? And I think today's text from Second Timothy offers a way forward as we consider some of these questions. So like we did last month as we sort of planted ourselves in a short passage near the end of 1 Timothy, we're going to do the same from this passage in the middle of 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be here for a couple of weeks. And we find in this letter Paul addressing some, sim- uh, addressing some similar concerns to those he addressed In his first letter to Timothy. In this one, Paul seems to be primarily concerned with encouraging Timothy to remain loyal to the gospel that Paul himself entrusted to him, even in the face of great suffering. Paul, of course, knew a great deal about suffering. He's actually writing this letter to Timothy from a Roman prison awaiting his death. In the section that we're going to read in just a moment, Paul lists some of the specific suffering he has endured and says, look, what I have experienced is not at all out of the realm of possibility for all who follow Jesus and desire to live a godly life. Reminding us that Christians are not exempt from suffering. I think we all know that to be the case experientially. Hopefully, we will learn over the course of our lives to suffer well, to suffer with patience and love and faith, some of the virtues Paul lists in this text. But he tells Timothy, remain loyal even when you suffer, and then secondly, remain loyal to the true gospel even in the face of these false teachers in the church in Ephesus who are threatening to tear everything apart. Despite what they are teaching, Despite the harmful principles guiding their actions, like like greed and pride, Paul says, Not so with you, Timothy. Don't be sucked in, don't be seduced, don't abandon the truth of the gospel. And I think in the midst of these situational instructions from Paul to Timothy, these encouragements that are centered around specific realities they are facing in the first century church, I I think we actually find substantial reminders for how all of us as disciples of Jesus are to live. Some of the principles at play here that guide us in our pursuit of becoming apprentices of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read through these instructions. You, however, so in contrast to those false teachers, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We'll pause here for a moment. Paul tells Timothy, in contrast to the false teachers, you, unlike them, you have followed my teaching. You have observed me and and studied my life in close quarters. Keep in mind, these two have a close relationship and they have for a long time. We're not talking a few months, we're talking decades and and in light of that long-term relationship Paul says you have had the opportunity to observe my life over the years and implement the way I live live implement those principles in your life be sure you are living in a similar manner as Paul says elsewhere continue to follow me as I follow Jesus Christ, and I think this gets at a core principle in Christian discipleship, and that is this, that Christian discipleship always occurs in proximity to other followers of Jesus. Discipleship always occurs in proximity to other followers of Jesus. Perhaps this is one of the reasons that the Desert Fathers had that saying. We've talked about this many times before, but that saying, one Christian is no Christian. Not only can I not understand my life of faith apart from the body of Christ, since by virtue of attaching myself to Jesus, I have also attached myself to his body, the church. I I can't understand my life of faith apart from the body of Christ, but it's also really difficult to grow apart from the body of Christ. It is difficult to become an apprentice, to pursue a life of spiritual depth on my own. In fact, as I reflect on my experiences, I simply cannot do it. I don't have the resources to grow on my own. I desperately need what others, including others in this room, I need what others can offer. This is a reality that Paul continually stresses throughout his writings. We we see it in other letters of his where he uses that image of the body to explore our interconnectedness. I can't understand myself as a follower of Jesus apart from the other parts of the body. In his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith argues that discipleship is often caught rather than taught. Apprentices of Jesus grow in their apprenticeship as they spend time with other apprentices of Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, you've followed me. You've heard my teaching. You've seen my conduct. You understand my aim in life. You know my faith and patience. You've seen all of this firsthand, and as you've witnessed it, it's not just something you observe, but in witnessing it, you have learned how to pursue life with Christ yourself. In other words, my relationship with you has offered something that you could not have acquired on your own. Proverbs twenty-seven 17 echoes a similar principle, saying as uh, iron sharpens iron... And one person sharpens another. Now we know that proximity to other people doesn't always mean that we are going to be sharpened. Depending on who we've surrounded ourselves with or who we allow to influence the aim of our lives, life in proximity to others might actually end up dulling our spiritual sensitivities. We, we know that it's not just proximity to other people that leads us into deeper discipleship because we all endured junior high school right we know the imitation game that often occurs in the walls of a junior high school but if we have consistent contact with individuals who have a similar aim who are serious about spiritual depth their pursuits their successes maybe their failures their wisdom over time, will sharpen us in our pursuit of the same. We are inspired, we are challenged, yes, we are discipled by the community around us. So number one, discipleship occurs in proximity to other disciples. Secondly, discipleship relies on practices we are committed to over the long haul, practices that shape us. So this is where we're tapping into what Eli announced in in the practicing the way efforts that we will be beginning shortly. We saw something along these lines also in our gospel text today. The parable that Jesus tells, encouraging his audience to be persistent in prayer. Practices like prayer maybe bible engagement all really all of the classical spiritual disciplines those practices nurture our souls let's continue reading in verse 14 where we left off but as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says, look, Timothy, you are able to remain faithful. You can Stay loyal and continue in firm belief precisely because you are grounded and rooted in our sacred scriptures and you have been since you were a kid. Practices like becoming acquainted with or immersing ourselves in our scriptures, these practices of worship are not just items on a to-do list, but they're practices that we have chosen to take up that we might be shaped by them. Back to that book, You Are What You Love. I'm going to read a couple of selections from that book by Jamie Smith. He argues that our deepest desires as human beings are often manifested in our daily lives through our habits. He put it this way. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves. Which, as we've observed, our habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. He goes on to say that learning to love God takes practice. Learning to love God takes practice. So our worship spiritual practices we engage in, all of those activities give us practice teaching us how to love God. Engaging in Christian community gives us practice. Immersing ourselves in the story of redemption Jesus brings, the, the story told throughout our Bible, gives us practice. Christian faith, our apprenticeship to Jesus develops through practices that we have taken on not as a means of cleaning the outside so that we look more spiritual or trying to impress others, but as a means of coming into alignment with Jesus Christ. We take on these practices so that hopefully we are in a position where we can allow our hearts which are so often formed by so many other things, these practices put us in a position to allow Christ to reform our hearts. This is one of the things we do week after week as we gather for worship in this room. I'll read another selection from that book. Smith put it this way, "'Worship works from the top down,' you might say. "'In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion "'and give him our praise,' We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Maybe we could think of it like this. It's sort of like getting a new technological device that requires some setup. Or maybe something that requires assembly or at the very least an understanding of how it works before you begin to use it. It is helpful to read and then follow the instructions. Maybe try to understand how something fits together before we jump into using it you know i i know people who won't even take the time to look at the pictures with ikea furniture that instructs you on how to put that together it's a waste of time i i've got this single little allen wrench i'm going to go to work with this particle board if if we want to complete a task and reach a goal there is often an appropriate way to do it. If I want to end up with the entertainment center I bought from IKEA instead of just a pile of sticks fit only for a bonfire, I I better follow the instructions even if they're just pictures. I'm not going to reach that goal if I don't follow the correct path. And I think in a similar way as Christians we We have a goal, we we have that telos or that aim in our lives. We want to experience wholeness in Jesus Christ. We want to be formed into his image and live into his life, but none of that just happens. Reaching those goals requires practices that shape our loves, and as our loves are shaped, we in turn are transformed. The reality is that everybody is being shaped. We are being formed by a variety of practices that we often do not think about, but subconsciously those practices are discipling us into a particular way of life. And if we stepped back and looked at where we were headed, it's probably not a way of life that we would have chosen, and yet we have taken on practices that are shaping us. Discipling us. If that's the case, we want to be really careful. We want to be intentional about the practices that we allow to shape us. We'll look at it this way. The, the late American author David Foster Wallace wrote an essay that appeared in the New York Times in 2006 entitled, Federer, Both Flesh and Not." And in that essay, he wrote about the art of successfully returning a hard-served tennis ball, which, by the way, if you've never played tennis, it's not as easy as the professionals make it look. And it's not just a matter of learning the appropriate technique involved in returning a serve. It requires, as, as he says in this essay, a strong kinesthetic sense. It requires the ability to control the body quickly. It includes feel and touch. Form, proprioception, hand-eye coordination, grace, control, reflexes, the list goes on and on. But he wrote this, and, and by the way, he was an accomplished tennis player himself, but he said this, For promising junior players, refining the kinesthetic sense is the main goal of the extreme daily practice regimens we often hear about. The training here is both muscular and Neurological. Hitting thousands of strokes day after day develops the ability to do by feel what cannot be done by regular conscious thought. Develops the ability to do by feel what cannot be done by regular conscious thought. And I think on some level this principle is an important one to consider in the development of our spiritual lives. Routines and practices that we engage in consistently over the course of our lives shape our loves. And as our loves are being shaped, our entire person is being formed and reformed. Those habits become so ingrained in us that our minds and our hearts are formed in ways that are very difficult to do if we just set out to do it on our own. Mark Twain once said that a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. <laughs> you, you can read about the experience others have in carrying a cat by the tail. You can even imagine what it would be like to do that yourself. But you only truly learn as you experience that. And I think there's something similar at play in Christian discipleship. We learn to be Christian as we engage in the Christian life. As we participate in rituals, both in this room and outside of this room, as we engage in rhythms and practices and relationships with one another. We are learning to be Christian as we Engage in Christian life. This is one of the ways in which transformation of our lives begins to take place. We're going to continue to explore this next week, but for now, we'll camp out here. Apprentices of Jesus, number one, grow in their apprenticeship in proximity to other apprentices. And apprentices to Jesus grow in their discipleship in practicing rhythms that reshape our loves And so form our lives. My prayer, and it's a prayer for me, my prayer for you, is that we would be willing to sort of take the long-term view, understanding that I'm not going to get there overnight, but I need to begin to take steps. I need to begin to take on these practices because I understand that I'm being discipled. I understand that my life is taking on a telos. I have an aim and often that is shaped by practices subconsciously. I'm not even aware that I'm being formed in those ways and so I want to resist that pull that I feel and I want to intentionally put practices in place that are going to take me toward the aim of becoming like Jesus and living into his life and his love. Would you stand as we gather around our table? As we respond to the invitation of Jesus, invited into his life through his body and blood, represented in these elements we have on this table. As we come to the table, we acknowledge that we are not just making a decision in this moment, but this is a life that we have committed to. And so we return week after week. Understanding that the encounter I had last week is not sufficient. I need a fresh encounter with Jesus and his love. I need to be drawn deeper into his life. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation to the table. We will make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements on your own and return to your seat. Say a prayer and then we will gather around the table of our Lord. Lord Jesus, we just pause in this moment to reflect upon the scriptures we have read. The call that we have received from you into the persistent life of prayer the call that we have received from Paul to take on these practices that shape us and form us. Help us to recognize those practices that are shaping us in ways that we would not choose if we were aware of them. Give us the courage to take on new practices that reform our hearts and our minds. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, on the cross, through wood and nails, you wrought our full salvation. Wield well your tools in this, your workshop, that we who come to you rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by your hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God, world without end. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?